Danvers State Hospital, formerly the State Lunatics Hospital at Danvers, was built in 1874 on top of an old Salem Village site in Massachusetts that was one of the first and primary locations for the Salem Witch Trials. This was a hospital with good intentions in the beginning, of course. Aren't they all? Welcome to Natural and Wild as we continue the Oktobercast podcast on our way to Halloween. Let's explore some of the most haunted sites in America and get ready for the veil to drop next week. Danvers, the state hospital and asylum, began losing money and employees in the late 1800s. Along with its splendor, the care towards patients started to deteriorate. There was a period of 10 grueling years between 1940 and 50 where part of the facility was designed to shelter a maximum of 600 patients. But with budget losses, they ended up packing more than 2,000 patients in there. And with the restraints and the overcrowding, this became a miserable place to be, akin to packing people into the bowels of ships and sending them to America. These people at the asylum began getting very sick, some dying unnoticed, curled up in cramped corners of the crowded hospital rooms. Shoving several thousand people into such a cramped area spread disease, neglect, and these people were mentally ill. So the screaming and the bullying and all the infighting sent the insanity meter through the roof. Patients became dirtier as they defecated on themselves and went for days without any attention. Pretty soon, it became very common for these patients' bodies to lie around decomposing because staff didn't notice they were missing or dead for days sometimes stretching into weeks. The stench was unbearable. It became so commonplace, as a matter of fact, that nursing and staff started to desensitize to it, and it wasn't a shock anymore. Just regular happenings as the days miserably rolled on at Danvers. And they kept taking in patients, had to get that money, because they were losing. So the lack of space became such a problem that they'd start sticking patients down in the basement, in holding. Patients started to die down there, breathing in the same diseased air, and some restrained in the same position, neglected, until they were dead. This institution was originally established to provide care for the mentally ill, but in 1889, 15 years after being built, the company decided to dive into pathological research and turned it primarily into a laboratory. Patients still being held there were given special clinical treatments, controversial and abusive. Fast forward to the 1990s, when the superintendent, Charles Page, finally decided restraint was unnecessary and harmful in cases of mental health. But this didn't mean restraint and torture would disappear. As the years rolled on, 
it meant now staff was utilizing straitjackets and lobotomies and powerful drugs that would take down an ox. The hospital was still overcrowded, still in financial strain, but they believed this would keep everything under control within the walls of Danvers. The 1960s saw a lot more controversy and people on the outside of the hospital questioning what was going on. So the inpatient numbers started to decline. They lost more funding. By 1985, most of the original buildings on the site were abandoned, which eventually led to the shutting the whole place down. The hospital was officially closed down in the summer of 1992. Now, Danvers was an incredibly visual and intense structure, very big with Gothic architecture. And when it was demolished, parts of it stayed and became part of what would be an apartment complex after the site was sold off to another company. So eventually it was residential, and people who lived in and tried to sleep there experienced intense hauntings and disturbing emotions and confused feelings. The original hospital did inspire H.P. Lovecraft's stories of Arkham Sanatorium, as well as some of the stories in the Batman comics, Arkham Asylum. The patients who died in pain and sickness and in prison in their own minds and filth at Danvers State Asylum are buried in numbered lots with no names on their stones. It's a lonely, large, green, flat field with a bunch of headstones in the shape of big cement keys. That's what they look like to me, with simple, lonely numbers on them. There's a wooden fence in the back, something you'd see in a cow field with a few trees growing around the edges. Very quiet, very open, just this isolated space. The grass is mowed, everything's kept clean, and this very neat, sterile place is their final resting ground. There was a public outcry to identify the remains, and volunteers did try very hard to find out who was buried where, but only a few patients were identified. A memorial service was held for those patients in 2002, and then a second ceremony was put together in 2015 for the remaining ones who were never identified. When the property was originally sold, one of the clauses in the bill was that the cemetery remained properly attended to. That's why it still gets mowed and kept clean to this day. And today, the property has been converted, again, into luxury apartments called Bradley Danvers. It's high-tech, with everything from virtual golfing to a juice bar. The rooms are luxurious, and you can purchase an apartment there if you're not so sensitive to restless spirits who go whispering and wandering in the night, no less having the torturous history of the Salem witch trials right under your floorboards. And now, on to those Salem witch trials. Let's explore the mindset at the time that led to this violence and insanity. This is a northern town with harsh, cold winters and no modern conveniences. Imagine having to knit all your family's socks by hand, keep them from walking around with holes in their clothes, 
clothes that get put through the ringer as everybody has to work really hard to sustain their shelter, brutally beaten down by winds and snow and ice, no easy access to water, raising and growing your own food, worried about your agricultural animals getting sick, your children getting sick. It was a time when disease was spreading like wildfire through the colony. People were dirty. Families shared the same bath water because you didn't have running faucets. People built their chimneys on the inside of their houses back then, before you started seeing them on the outside. This meant the raw rock chimneys would often get too hot and burn down part of the house. And so everybody was always on alert to to put out a, a neighbor's fire. This was a hard, dirty, dark time. The mindset and aggravation levels were already set up to spread paranoia and gossip of the devil, especially when Samuel Paris, a strict conservative Puritan, became employed as the colony's reverend and brought with him his daughter, his wife, and his niece, and two slaves to live in Salem. Mr. Paris did not tolerate any degree of relaxation from the strict rulings of Puritan evangelical faith. And such a strict parent usually means the kids are going to act out, which they did. His two girls, his daughter and niece, became interested in and started experimenting with fortune-telling, primarily to figure out who their future husbands would be and in regards to their own social popularity and status. And these girls started defying Mr. Paris by pretending to be victims of devil trickery when they wanted to shirk their duties or get out of responsibility. You have to remember, everyone had to work hard and constantly as soon as they were of age and physically capable to do so. So the daughter starts contorting her body around and talking gibberish, pretending like she was mad and unfit for doing anything but lying around the house and terrorizing her father. Samuel prayed and prayed for his daughter. His niece started acting the same way. When the prayers and the pining didn't work, he called in the local doctor. The good doctor gave his final diagnosis that the two girls had to be bewitched. Now at this time, everyone in the colony was paranoid, stressed out, miserable. They were all living under the threats of neighboring native tribes warring with each other, and that violence often spread into the colony. And so this became the recipe for such a degree of paranoia and fear that it spurred the Salem witch trials. These people just went nuts. The very first person to be tried and found guilty was a 60-year-old woman named Bridget Bishop, and she was hanged on June 10, 1692. She wasn't the first accused, but she was the first actually convicted and hanged. Five young women accused her of bewitching them. This first conviction set the standard in motion that would become one of the creepiest, most screwed-up times in our history. Many women, and some men too, dead for being prosecuted as witches. A ton of other people tortured in prisons and waiting to be hanged or worse. 
Today, Salem, Massachusetts is ripe with hauntings, apparitions, and some intense emotions trapped within those old grounds. The Joshua Ward House in Salem was built on land that used to be owned by one of the most sadistic men in the town during the Salem Witch Trials. He used unusually cruel methods to interrogate young women. Visitors to this place claimed they felt themselves being choked while walking the grounds there. A&B Salem, a burger joint co-owned by Amy Butler, used to be a jailhouse, and staff and customers there have experienced apparitions and random cold spots and an overall feeling of discomfort while they were there. Salem's haunted bookstore, called Wicked Good Books, had books regularly go missing. Some people claim they've seen them fall off the shelves by themselves. The owner hired a construction crew at one point, and that crew uncovered secret tunnels below the store. They also found tangible evidence of desecrated human remains under there. There's a bar and restaurant called Murphy's, which sits on the back corner of the old Burying Point Cemetery in Salem. Once, a child's coffin broke through the wall and into the restaurant, indicating the place had been constructed over several of the graves at the edge of the cemetery. People have seen numerous ghosts in that place, including some Victorian lady in a powder blue dress. And there are so many more that I can't fit into one podcast when I still want to talk about one of the more violent histories and hauntings that exists way down in Louisiana a hot spot of slavery and systematic abuse back in the 17 and early 1800s, namely the Lalari Mansion. The site of one of the most horrific stories of slavery and torture in the Deep South. There are a lot of different accounts of this story, and since hauntings and houses play a big role in the economy of New Orleans, sometimes tours and stories get a little out of hand with embellishments. I wanted to get down into the heart of the real story, which is hard to do without a little research, and I landed on a dissertation written by a historian at Portland State University. This had more valuable information, the kind I was looking for. Madame Delphine LaLaurie was a socialite and elitist. She was married three times, and recounts of her own children over the years are interesting because you get a sense that their mother wasn't all there in the head. In one report from her son, after the family had fled to Paris to escape the angry mob that chased her out of New Orleans, she apparently didn't know why she shouldn't come back and really wanted to and had planned on it. The family went into a fit and fought her on that until she finally gave up the idea. Now, anyone who knows about the LaLaurie Mansion in New Orleans knows the story about how rescuers responding to a fire in that house in 1834 ended up with the discovery of bound slaves in an upstairs room and evidence of bizarre torture at the hands of Madame LaLaurie, who did not play the typical role of the doting wife of the 1800s. When the neighborhood found out, they formed an angry mob and burned the place to the ground. 
LaLaurie did manage to escape with her family to France. So there's the quick version. LaLaurie was in clear violation of the laws concerning the treatment of slaves. There were laws. They were put in place by a pro-slave society that was trying to ease the guilt of proper Christians who owned slaves. But LaLaurie used her wealth and her position in society to get herself out of any kind of scrutiny. She was not only rich, but she was in the higher elitist circles. She was used to treating slaves however she wanted to, getting her way, being in charge of all her properties. Her husbands didn't have much to say in that. But she believed in image, and she was taught from a young age that image played a big part in success. So she was charming in public, and she treated African Americans graciously in public. She even emancipated two of her own slaves for the sake of her public image. But even with all this charm, and she wasn't a bad-looking woman either, a mix of Spanish and Celtic blood, her close acquaintances did notice the mistreatment of her slaves at home. When she whipped these people, she kept beating them until they fell unconscious. There was a neighbor who saw her chase a 12-year-old little girl out onto the roof with a whip. The girl so scared of punishment from LaLaurie that she pitched herself off the roof to her death. That little girl's ghost has been seen many times at the site of the LaLaurie mansion to this day. LaLaurie had a powerful position in the community. So even though gossip was flying all over the quarter, she avoided confrontation over any of this because those who benefited from her money would become indignant at the mention of her abuse and never dare act as a witness. Otherwise, they'd be exiled from her high-dollar extravagant dinner parties with expensive wine. The ability to benefit from everything she owned as a close friend or acquaintance. We're talking about the equivalent of someone befriending somebody who's astonishingly rich and charming and being able to sort of ride their coattails and have a high-class life. But there were also many people who hated her, primarily the general public of New Orleans, and a high number of women who'd watch her get everything she wanted and basically not have to adhere to wifely duties that most women would have had to bear, that being low on the totem pole in the gender equality side of marriage back in the 1800s. LaLaurie's husbands basically had no say in her life, and she held more money and power than they did. So she had quite a few enemies. And on April 10, 1834, a fire broke out in her house. It was started by a slave woman she kept chained to the cooking range in an attempt of suicide. The woman claimed she was getting old, and she was terrified she'd be taken to the upstairs room soon, where you never come out again. There was a party going on that night, and she took that chance to try to end her life and expose what was going on at the mansion. The guests were rushed out of the house, and the rescuers were called in. There was no way to hide this, because there were too many people there that night. The judge for the parish court of New Orleans was there, trying to save and free slaves from the fire, 
and LaLaurie told him he shouldn't even bother with that. He later reported that he'd seen slaves chained and abuse that went well beyond what people would consider abuse. It was psychotic. It was no longer hidden after about seven slaves were brought outside and into the open. People were able to see their state. They were emaciated, weak, had been horribly mutilated and suspended by the neck, limbs apparently stretched and torn from one extremity to another. Some of these men and women were unable to hold their heads up or walk on their own anymore. They were disfigured and all of them tortured, covered in wounds and sores. One elderly man had his face so beaten in he was unrecognizable. One woman had her back so wounded her bones were visible. There were bottles of blood from extractions of the slaves. The scene was so gruesome that the local newspaper wouldn't go into detail, and this was only what was uncovered at the time of the fire. The public of New Orleans could no longer pretend nothing was going on. The horrors were exposed, and they were so severe that there was no way any of it could have been attributed to an accident. Delphine LaLaurie had a hobby, and that hobby was the sadistic torture of slaves in a room from where they would never leave again. The angry mob lit out towards her house and burned it to the ground. The building that stands there today is another one, built in its place, but on the same haunted and restless ground. The place reserved for the torture of numerous men and women in the original LaLaurie Mansion was the attic space. Delphine kept them locked in there and the windows all boarded up to hide her crimes. It was hot, it was New Orleans, it was humid. They had iron cages around their heads and necks that kept them from lying down and sleeping. Now, since she was older than her husband and foresaw the whole entire managing and purchasing of the properties, it was easy for her to barricade off that small section from his eyes. And her slaves weren't the only ones who suffered at her hands. Her daughters were sympathetic of her slaves and tried to free them and feed them whenever they could. But whenever they were caught, they were severely punished and beaten for it. Everyone in that house lived in fear of Miss LaLaurie. It was later determined by investigation that Delphine LaLaurie was capable of multiple personality behavior and that her cruel treatment of her slaves was not out of racism. She was absolutely demented, a sadist with a mental illness. There were slaves at the property who seemed loyal to her, maybe out of fear, and then she had a few in the attic she endlessly tortured. There was a slave man who is rumored to have been the driver who helped her escape the mob and drove her to the port. She could go from being sympathetic to the needy and helping charities around New Orleans to doing obscene, violent things to people. And all accounts point towards the hypocrisy having something to do with her feeling dishonored or wronged. She didn't beat and torture these people simply because they were slaves. She beat and tortured them because she felt they wronged her, and she enjoyed it. The LaLaurie Mansion has been rebuilt, and it's been a girls' school, a conservatory of music, 
a residence for adolescent offenders, and a luxury apartment complex. And in all cases, people have reported a general bad feeling, and in some cases, suffering physical harm while staying there. The energy of that place remains heavy, negative, and dark, although the original building is gone. There was such suffering there that those spirits can't seem to find peace. And it's only rumored that Delphine made her way all the way back to Paris, France. Nobody really knows where she lived the rest of her life or where she died. Reports came from several girls when the place had been restored as an all-girls school that they were experiencing abuse from that lady. The girls would show up with their sleeves rolled up and wounds on their forearms. Maybe Delphine never left New Orleans. Maybe her spirit still haunts the building. This has been Natural and Wild's October Cast podcast. The haunts and chilling stories continuing through to the end of the month. Tune in next week when I reveal the double murder that happened in my own family, something that horror movies are made of. Halloween is drawing close. I'd like to thank the first-class supporters of this show, as it's a listener-supported podcast. Sheila McGregor, Arnold Bloom, William Bishop, Robin Umber, Chris Nolan, and Yvonne Ragland. Have a great weekend, stay safe, and get spooky.